Let's pray as we come to God's Word this morning. Our Father, we thank you that your Word reveals us the truth, uh, and this truth can bury right down into our hearts and change our lives. We thank you that it's only possible because you are the living God, and your Word is living and active. And so as we come before it, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear, uh, that you would open our eyes to see this truth, You would open our hearts to receive this truth in Jesus, in what he's done through his grace and his great power. And by your spirit, we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the the reading today begins with Nebuchadnezzar at ease in his house and prospering in his palace. And I had a moment of ease and prospering yesterday. It was mid-afternoon. I was sitting on the, um, the beanbag in front of the fire because it was nice and cold. I had a glass of wine in my hand. And I could have fallen asleep then. And it was just such a good time. I just wanted to let you know that. But it was, it was as if uh, this was happening to Nebuchadnezzar himself. You can imagine him sitting there on his beanbag in front of the fire just thinking about how good life is with some nice Babylonian uh, vintage in his hand. And he falls asleep. And a dream hits him, and the dream is not pleasant at all. In fact, the dream sets him to fear and alarm, though his life is exceptionally good. And that is what God wants to do for us today. I was chatting with a guy this week. uh, He's a a local gardener and um, professional gardener. I was having a chat with him. And one of the things I said, uh, because he was talking about you know, having some kind of faith from a religious education in the background, doesn't think about things too often like that anymore. And I said, Christianity has this way of interrupting our lives. The living God has this way of coming upon us, not so much to make our life easier and us more prosperous, but like a lion comes upon its prey and changes their destiny forever. That is the way that God seems to interrupt our lives. God is not out, as it turns, to leave us in our ease and prosperity apart from Him or even in place of Him. God is in the business, in our text today, of producing alarm in our life for great reason. And so this morning we see a warning to the proud, A warning to the proud. There's four aspects I want to explore with you in this warning. Firstly, we'll look at the context of the warning. What was Nebuchadnezzar's life like that warranted such a great warning from God in this dream that instilled fear and alarm in his heart? Secondly, we'll dive a bit deeper into the warning itself. What does it mean and what does it mean for us? Thirdly, we'll look at the deeper purpose of that warning. And finally, I want to look with you at the mercy that God gives through warning us of our pride. So warning to the proud. What is the context of this warning? Well, in the the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, perhaps while he was uh, just enjoying himself, it says he was at ease and prospering in his palace. We see this image of a great tree. An enormous tree. 
If you've uh, ever seen an enormous tree before, you can almost behold the glory of the tree as you look at it. You know, the, the width and the height of the tree. I remember uh, my wife and I travelled in New Zealand to see some family uh, many years ago, and we went to a forest of redwood trees. Now, redwoods are the tallest trees in the world. And these trees are so tall and so wide, you look up and you can barely see the top. They are incredible. You almost stand in awe of the greatness of these trees. And Nebuchadnezzar, the, gr- the greatest king of Babylon, the greatest king in humanity at the time that we know of, is described as this great tree. His life is incredible. His prosperity is perhaps unparalleled. He's described in other dreams as being someone who is, is like a head of gold above all others. He is great. In verse 11, we see that he has grown into this. He's become someone of excellent strength. People have begun to see him from all parts of the world. This Babylonian empire, we must remember, stretches in the Middle East from about where Egypt is all the way to the northern parts near Afghanistan. This is a large kingdom. And it has expanded during Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He is a strong and mighty king. We see in verse 12 in this dream that he's become a blessing to all the peoples of this nation. People receive food from him as the head of this kingdom. People are doing fairly well across all the nations that this kingdom rules over. His reign was filled with splendor a blessing to all, and he provides food and shelter to those around him. Nebuchadnezzar, as we can see, like a great tree, providing shade to all those under it and fruit to all those beneath, is incredible. And yet, in his ease and prosperity, there is one thing that he lacks. Humility. All of this all of this ease and prosperity, all of this greatness is apart from God or even in the place of God. It might seem for you and I that we have our lives together. Is your life together this morning? Are you at ease and prosperous? It's hard to say no in a nation like Australia. I heard recently that we were... Um, on some list somewhere, said to be the most prosperous nation on earth. What a title. And yet what a message for us this morning. Are you at ease and prosperous? Is your life good? Are your relationships in order? Do you get along with your family really well? Maybe, you know, you've got children and then you've got grandchildren. Perhaps even you've got great-grandchildren. You know, perhaps you have great prospects ahead of you in life. You've had a good education. And as a university student, you have high ambitions. Perhaps you've just entered your career and you think if things keep going this way, you will do very well for yourself and you will end your life with great ease and great prosperity. Perhaps you imagine to yourself, That that is what I want. I want to be like Nebuchadnezzar sitting by the fire with a glass of a good Babylonian vintage. Looking forward to a life that will just get better and better. What does God have to say 
to people whose life is going really well. Well, if, if you imagine all of those things I described just before as the horizontal aspect of our life, the life where it's, it's of the world, it's of our relationships in the world, what we do in the world, our jobs, our education, you know, our standard of living, our house, our material possessions. Imagine that as the horizontal aspect of your life. But there is another aspect an aspect that is easily neglected, and it is the vertical aspect, the relationship between you and God. It is an aspect that can be easily ignored. Why? Because it can disappear amongst all the good things that we have in our lives. And yet this vertical aspect, as revealed here in this text for us today, is by far the most important. Why? I'll give you a simple fact. Everything that you have on your vertical, oh sorry, on your horizontal plane will pass away. Everything. Not one thing will remain. But the vertical, the implications of your vertical relationship with you and the living God will stand for all eternity. And so the stakes then are very, very high. And the problem for us personally and the problem in our culture today is we almost always measure success by what is happening in our lives horizontally. If I asked you, how are you going? You would tell me about your horizontal life. Perhaps if you asked me how I'm going, I will tell you about my horizontal life. And yet this one will just pass away. Our life is like a grain of sand on an endless beach. And it will just be gone all of a sudden. But the vertical relationship between us and the living God, its implications stand for all eternity. And so let me ask you a very personal question. What does your life look vertically this morning? I don't want to know how your life's going horizontally. Because as we see our friend Nebuchadnezzar, he was doing really well. And yet when God revealed to him there was a problem in his vertical relationship between him and God and how he was responding to that, it put fear and alarm into his heart. This question is not here today to make you feel at ease. This question today is here today to make you consider where you stand with the living God and how are you living your life. The problem with pride is that it has a subsurface aspect to it. And no one knows that better than those who rode on the great ship, the Titanic. So in the early 1900s, there was a great competition uh, amongst those uh, companies that uh, ran these great ships across the Atlantic Ocean between uh, North America and Europe. And basically, up until about 1910, the competition was how fast you could get from England or Europe to North America. And people would go very regularly. But then uh, there was a couple of uh, companies in competition with one another, and the uh, CEO of a, one of the leading shipping companies called White Star came up with a plan. His plan was to create an even bigger fleet 
of ships that would dwarf all others around them. And these ships would be known for their comfort above all things. They would be the ships that the wealthy would ride in above all. And he was sure that that would increase their profit margin and their grandeur of their company if they were to be the best on the Atlantic Ocean. In 1907, White Star devised the greatest ship that the world had ever seen, and it was called the Titanic. It would be known for its unprecedented size and unparalleled luxury. The greatest ship that the world had ever seen was also called unsinkable because of the level of technology that it had. The Titanic launched for its maiden voyage on April the 10th, 1912. It was going from Europe across to North America. The voyage was nicknamed, this very voyage was nicknamed the Millionaire's Special. And it was literally then a floating vessel of comfort and prosperity, would you believe? There was approximately 1,300 passengers and 900 crew on board this great vessel. On April the 14th, Out on the wide ocean, other vessels began to warn the Titanic that there was an ice field ahead. But these warnings were ignored, and the ship continued at its fast pace then of 22 knots. But disaster lurked. With a small head of ice, an iceberg is perhaps one of the most dangerous things, not because of what you can see, but because of what you can't see. What you see might be small and white, but what is beneath the surface is what will sink you. After hitting an iceberg, this ship, after all its warnings, began to sink. However, some of the crew perhaps convinced, and some of the passengers perhaps convinced, that this ship was still unsinkable, put on a grand performance where they, you know, serenaded their audience as it was sinking into the cold ocean beneath. Some realised that they needed to get off this ship, but alas, there were not enough life rafts to carry everyone. The ship sank, and more than 1,500 people perished, though they were warned. You see, for Nebuchadnezzar and for us, ease and prosperity are a little bit like the top of the iceberg. It's what you can see in people's lives. And it might look, you know, attractive even. It might look okay. But beneath is where the danger lies. And for us, beneath the surface is a root of pride. If you can see ease and prosperity at the top apart from God, beneath the surface there is something far more dangerous and it is Pride. You know, ease and prosperity are just the circumstances of your life, but they are the conditions under which pride flourishes. Ease and prosperity are not bad and evil in and of themselves, but if it is set up in the place of God, if that is what you live for, if the horizontal aspect is all that you care for, then it is like an iceberg and it will sink your life worse than the Titanic. The problem with pride is that it is 
pervasive. It's a 24-7 type thing, and it can be infecting all horizontal aspects of your life, though it will look great and successful to your friends, your family, your peers, your co-workers, and the world around you. It will look amazing. And that is why it is so very dangerous. Because if you have all horizontal and no vertical, then when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you will have nothing to say. You will be speechless. And if, as a religious person, perhaps even as a church attender, a Christian person, you are still living your life, only for the horizontal, when you really stand before God, what will you say about the way that you've been living? When it all passes to dust, what will you say? This is a very important, but perhaps alarming question that we must ask ourselves. So that is the context. Secondly, we look to the warning itself. Now, I had a really silly experience this week. I went for a jog, as I do sometimes at lunchtime, took my key card to get into this building with me, ended up losing my key card on my run, and I've thought to a few times to myself, I'll probably lose this, so I need to be more careful. Anyway, I lost the key card. So I thought, well, I'll run back, and I was pretty tired at this point, but I thought, I'll run back along the track that I ran on and try and find the key card, which I did. I was so happy. I actually found the key card. I thought... Well, I'll learn my lesson now. I'm going to take good care of this. And then I got back to the church building, and you know what? I'd lost it again. And so you know what I did? I went out again, and I looked for it. I thought, surely, surely I'll find it a second time. But no, no, the key card was gone forever and reminded me of this text. Proverbs 16, verse 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I was warned that I might lose my key card by losing it, and I did not take good care of it that second time. You know what I thought to myself in my pride? I thought this would be a great sermon illustration. <laughs> After I'd found it, because I thought, oh, finding a key card, you know, something that was lost, going to all this effort. I was thinking of the parable, uh, you know, of the, the woman uh, in, the, uh, uh, in Luke 15 who's looking for the lost coin, and she looks everywhere and finds, and I thought I found it. And then when I got back, I thought, oh, gee, it just sank the sermon illustration. But guess what? I'm still using it. So there you go. It worked out all right in the end. But the warning was there for me, and I did not heed it. The warning was there for Nebuchadnezzar, but the, even in the warning, it reveals that he will not heed it. I want you to notice this about the warning from verses 13 to 15. This tree which represents Nebuchadnezzar's greatness, will be cut down. That means that every blessing that he has will be undone. It will be reversed and taken away. The height, the growth, and the blessing that he is, that he is to others. All of his stature, all of the greatness of who he is as a person, as the ruler of this great kingdom, will be taken away from Nebuchadnezzar in one fell sweep. So Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom rule will be undone. That will take away his pride, you might think. But no, God knows the heart 
and God knows that he must go deeper. And so Nebuchadnezzar, we see in the second half of verse 15 and verse 16, will be personally undone. He himself will lose his mind. He'll be out there in the field, it says he will be wet with the dew of heaven. He will go from the palace to the field. He will become as one with an unsound mind for seven years. He will become beastly, like a beast, he's described. Perhaps it was a nervous breakdown, but we know whom the source is. It comes from the judgment of God. Can you imagine for a minute with me that you have a family member who's an alcoholic? Now, some of this might not be too far from the imagination. Now, in this instance, when a family member is an alcoholic, you worry about them, you're concerned about them, but at some point, hopefully, for their sake, it will get to breaking point, and you realize that you need to make an intervention. You, together with other members of the family and close friends, have realized that you've heard all the excuses. You've heard all the promises that this person is the master over alcohol and they could stop any time if they wanted to. You've heard all the promises that they will reform themselves. They've even been to, you know, enforce personal rehab programs online and it hasn't worked. You've heard the lies that it's only one or two nights a week. You've heard all the lies that are covered by a constant smell of minty freshness on their breath, which you know hides the smell of alcohol. And so you as and other family and friends together decide to confront this alcoholic family member because you cannot allow it to continue anymore. You love them too much to see their actions end in disaster. Because you know that it will. You know that if they keep going this way, they will drive everyone away from them and ruin their life. And so you stage an intervention. You want to put an end to it. You want to cut it off. You want to speak truth in love into this person's life. And I tell you, pride is just like that, except unlike alcoholism, it often looks like success on the outside. Ease and prosperity. Isn't that what we all look for? Isn't that our aim in life? But I tell you, pride can be more dangerous than alcohol addiction. For it lurks in plain sight. And rather than it destroying lives, it may make your life more successful, at least in this life. The world around you will encourage it, and guess what? There is no rehab program for it. Hidden beneath the surface, pride is not just setting a life apart from God, but it is putting things in the place of God, and that is utterly destructive and dangerous for all eternity. Jesus said these words, which we should take heed to. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, money you can earn. You can say these words with money. I deserve it. I earned this. You can even get this by comfort with money. In fact, for many of us, that is our purpose in receiving it. You can say, this is my reward for the hard work that I have done. 
But with God, you cannot say these same words. With God, you receive things as a gift. With God, you must be thankful because you realize that he is the giver of life and breath and everything. But with money, you can say, I did this, it's mine. The danger when it comes to Christianity and comfort and ease is we can come to God expecting that he will make us more prosperous and our life easier. And yet what did Jesus say? Take up your cross and follow me. He didn't say, take out your checkbook and I'll write you a blank check. Not that we use checkbooks anymore. He didn't say, here's my platinum American Express, go spend. He did not say that. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. A cross is not a symbol of ease and prosperity. A cross is is a symbol of self-sacrifice and suffering. So why? Why would we think that we would come to God and he would want to add to our ease and prosperity. Now, let me be clear. Ease or comfort, being the synonym we're using today, comfort and prosperity are not bad in and of themselves, are they? They're not wrong in and of themselves. They're just things. They're just aspects of life. But if your trust is really in those things, if your aim in life is really those things themselves, then they will consume and destroy you because they are nothing compared to a mighty God who rules the heavens and the earth. And that is the message that God wanted to bring to bear on Nebuchadnezzar. And that is the message that God wants to bring to bear on you and I this morning. If you think that God is out to make you, you know, great and wealthy uh, and you know, filled with ease and comfort in your life, you've come to the wrong religion. In fact, Jesus was very explicit. Following him might actually cost you more ease and prosperity than you would be otherwise. Of course, this begs the question, Why would you be interested in Christianity? Why would you be interested in Christ if he promises difficulty and hardship, not ease and prosperity? What is it that has compelled people of every generation to give up everything and to turn to the living God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to set aside all of their ease and all of their prosperity? What is it? that gets into the heart of missionaries who would give up their ease and prosperity in their native uh, homeland and their native language and go to another place and even to be martyred for the sake of the message of the gospel. What would lead people to do that? Why? Unless there is something greater on offer. Unless there is something greater than every aspect of the horizontal unless the vertical aspect of our relationship between us and God has far more promise to it than what the earth could ever offer you. That is the only reason, the only logical reason Christianity makes any sense whatsoever. 
There is no other reason except that there is a greater treasure in heaven. That Jesus is a greater treasure than everything else added up in your life. Everything you could possibly imagine to get for yourself in this life, Jesus trumps them all a billion, billion, billion fold. And even larger than that. A number you can't even imagine. My kids tell, it, tell me it's Googleplex. I don't believe them. But there is some great grand number that you cannot even imagine. God is greater. And his treasure, a treasure of all eternity with him, is greater than anything else on this earth. So why would you give yourself to earthly things and forsake that? That is the warning. So we've seen the context of the warning to the proud, the warning itself. Let us briefly look at the purpose of the warning, thirdly. In verse 17, what is the purpose of this warning? It is that the living may know that the Most High, i.e. God, rules the kingdom of men. What is the purpose of this great humbling which is going to come to Nebuchadnezzar? That God is God and there is no other. That God rules over mankind, not man. That God is the author of life, not humanity. That God is God and there is no other. What else? Second half of verse 17. For man to see that God gives to whom he will, setting it over the lowliest of men. God is not just Lord and ruler of all, but he is Lord and ruler of the small. He cares about the intricate details of your life. He cares about the extra zero in your bank balance. He cares about how you spend your time when you're alone, when no one else is looking. Because God cares about even the lowliest of people and the smallest detail in our lives. This is great news. Because God doesn't just care about the Nebuchadnezzars of the world. In fact, he's humbling the Nebuchadnezzars of the world to show us that he cares about the least of these the smallest child, the unborn child, the person who thinks no one cares, the lonely, the destitute, the poor, the refugee. God cares. God said his father to the fatherless. Those in foster care, God cares. God cares about them. Even if we don't, even if our lives have no interest in those of a lower class or a lower position in life to us, God cares. And he cares deeply. And the reason that he is bringing this warning to bear upon Nebuchadnezzar is because he has not shown mercy to the oppressed. Because Nebuchadnezzar has not cared about those that God cares about. So what is the purpose of this warning? The man would see that God alone is king. For man to see that God gives to whom he will, setting it over the lowliest of men. But I want to tell you there's another purpose to this warning and it's a warning that comes with grace because you know what would be worse than receiving a warning like this? That if you got no warning, would it not? We need to see that our ease and prosperity won't save us. We need to see that God's judgment is coming and we need a saviour. There was a man who was... Uh, on board the Titanic. His name was John Harper. 
So, no, the man who died on the Titanic, his name was John Harper. Let me read the story. Four years ago, when I left England on board the Titanic, I was a careless, godless sinner. I was in this condition on the very night when the terrible catastrophe took place. Very soon, with hundreds more, I found myself struggling in the cold, dark waters of the Atlantic. I caught hold of something and clung to it for dear life. The wail of awful distress from the perishing all around me was ringing in my ears when there floated by me a man who too seemed to be clinging to something. He called to me, Is your soul saved? I replied, No, it is not. Then he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We drifted apart for a few minutes and then seemed to be driven together once more. Is your soul saved? Again, he cried out. I fear it is not, I replied. Then if you will but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, your soul shall be saved. Was his further message of intense appeal to me. But again, we were separated by the rolling currents. I heard him call out this message to others as they sank beneath the waters into eternity. There and then with two miles of water beneath me, in my desperation, I cried unto Christ to save me. I believed upon him and was saved. In a few minutes, I heard this man of God say, I'm going down, I'm going down. Then, no, no, I'm going up. That man was John Harper. You see, when you're drowning, you don't need someone to make you more comfortable. When you're on a ship that's sinking, you don't need the orchestra to come out and to play a nice tune for you. You need to be saved. You don't cling to a piece of driftwood out in the ocean. And when someone says there's a way to save you for all eternity, you don't say, no thanks. You don't say, I'll make it on my own. I've got my own way to do this. What do you do? You reach out and you grab the hand of the one extended to you. People don't need a better life. They need a saviour. Let me say that again. People don't need more ease and prosperity. I don't need more ease and prosperity and neither do you. You need a saviour. Because I tell you, we are in a a place and a time where we have unprecedented Ease and prosperity. Out of all of human history, more than Nebuchadnezzar could barely dream. How far do you think we've fallen? Horizontally, it looks great. I love this country. I love this city. I love the people in it. I love my family. I love all the good things that God has given me. Do you? Do you love those things that you've been given? The grace of God to be born in an age like this. The peace and prosperity, the ease, the comfort in which we enjoy every day. And yet you know what? It can be our greatest hindrance. Because it all looks good horizontally. But if vertically all is not good, we can ignore it for our entire life. So I've seen the purpose of the warning. Let me finish with this. The mercy of the warning. There's something strange uh, in this text. It explains that you know, th- this tree, which represents Nebuchadnezzar, will be cut down. 
But then it explains that something will be done, to, it'll be left as a stump. It won't be uprooted, it'll be left as a stump. There'll be a limitation, and it'll, no, there'll be seven years that it'll look like a stump, and it's actually bound, oddly, with iron and bronze. Now, I had to think about this. I was like, why on earth would you bind something, like a, a tree stump, with iron and bronze, except to protect it? except to preserve it, except that it might live again another day and grow back. You see, the whole purpose of this warning at its root is not to destroy Nebuchadnezzar, is it? But to warn him of a far worse destruction that awaits unless he reconciles himself to the living God. God is limiting the humility that will come upon Nebuchadnezzar in time and in place. And we referred to this a bit last week. But if God is humbling you at the moment, he is doing it so that you will see his goodness and his worthiness to be praised and your need for a great saviour, Jesus Christ. So there is a great mercy to this warning. Now this same mercy is what we need to receive from God. The gospel tells us that when we couldn't work our way to God through having good lives and great prosperity, which actually we've done in opposition to God, when we couldn't get our lives together as humanity, which if you look at the news, you realize that we haven't. If you look honestly at your own life, you'll realize that you hadn't. The good news tells us that God himself came to us in the man Jesus Christ. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus lived the life we ought to have lived. Though he was the ri- he's richer than the richest person that ever lived, though he had more comfort than we could possibly imagine in heaven, he stepped into earth. Why? Why? Out of love, the Bible tells us. Out of love for humanity. Out of care for his creation, that he would save us from our peril that comes from our pride die for our sins, that we might be forgiven of them if we call upon him, risen from the dead, that we might have an eternity set aside for us with Jesus in heaven. That is the promise of the gospel. And so there is a mercy to a warning because God outstretches his hands to us as the Savior Jesus Christ and says, come with me. Don't stay where you are. Stick with him. Why would we stick with Jesus if he was just a man? Well, he wasn't just a man. He was God the Son, fully God, fully man. One of the powerful things we learn about Jesus is that he was tempted in every way that we are and yet without sin. Jesus was tempted by every factor of pride that we have been in our lives and yet he was without sin. If you struggle with pride... If this is a thing that rests in your heart, and I dare say there's no one here that doesn't. It's one of those base sins that we all share in in many ways. If pride is in your heart and you need to save, you need to reach out to Jesus. C.S. Lewis had this amazing metaphor. He described uh, battling against temptation like fighting a headwind. And as the wind gets stronger and stronger, you stop moving forward and you stop. And as the winds increase... You know, 100 kilometers an hour, 120 kilometers an hour, 150 kilometers an hour, at some point you must give in. 
And so you lay yourself down before it and surrender to temptation. But you would not know what it would be like even five minutes later to stand against the increasing brutality of that hurricane of temptation before you. But Christ did. He was tempted in every way that was common to man. He withstood the hurricane force winds of temptation and did not yield. Not even one bit. Not even when he was put on a cross. Not even in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he was, had the first taste of what was coming for him, separation from the Father on that cross, he did not yield one bit. Why? Why would he not give up? It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him. And I tell you, there's another joy that Jesus wants in heaven. It's you. There's another joy that Jesus wants in heaven. It's you. There's this beautiful parable I sort of alluded to it earlier in John 15. It talks about Jesus. It talks about a, a shepherd going out after a lost sheep. It leaves the 99 behind of the flock and goes after the one. And after this sheep is found by the shepherd, he puts it up on his shoulders and carries it back into the flock. You notice the sheep can't save itself. It needs a saviour to come and get it. And when the sheep is returned, it, uh, the, Jesus telling the parable describes this as like one sinner that comes back to repentance and it says all the company of heaven rejoices together for just one sinner that returns. What does this tell us about the mercy of God is that he wants to increase his own joy by welcoming you in and saving you in his kingdom. And so if you don't know Christ this morning, come into the arms of a great saviour who has died on a cross and risen from the dead for you. Enter into the joy that he offers. If you're far from Christ, if you know that you're vertical, not your horizontal, we're not talking about that this morning, your vertical life is out of order, come to Christ. He has great joy Set aside before you. He warns you to show you his love. Imagine, again, the Titanic. Imagine the people after the ship has sunk, those clinging to bits of, bits of wood, you know, anything that would float. You can imagine uh, the rescue ships coming and seeing someone almost frozen to death and pulling them up out of the water. I want you to picture this. The people on the rescue ship have greater joy at that time than the person being lifted up out of the water because they've saved them. They've got another one. They're so glad that they're there just to get someone and bring them out of the water. And I tell you, our God is so glad for the joy that was set before him to rescue people out of the deep and dark waters of an eternity separated from him. He is so joyful to do it because of the great love that he has for all of us. Why would we not? Why would we not come to him? Set aside our pride. Set aside every horizontal thing that you've set up your life for, every purpose that you have set 
up your life for apart from God and come to Jesus, your Savior. Because if you've got the vertical, right, the horizontal, well, it doesn't matter so much anymore. Our God is good. Let us pray to him. Our good Lord, our loving Savior, we think of you this morning because we have not got our lives together as we ought to. Though it looks like we have, though in many horizontal aspects we are at ease and we are prosperous, yet Lord, with you, our living God, we have caught ourselves up in pride. Forgive us our sin. Lord Jesus, I ask that anyone this morning who doesn't know you, who's heard these words and the call to come to Christ, to set aside everything else and to come to you, our crucified and risen Saviour for the forgiveness of sin and for the resurrection of the dead would come in their hearts right now to Jesus. Receive him, the great Saviour, the one worthy of all praise, come into the joy of Christ. Lord, let our, all of our hearts be inclined towards you for the great joy that you have promised us. May glory be to Jesus, we pray this morning in his name. Amen.